Good morning, good morning. If you have your Bibles, keep them open in Romans chapter 2. That's where we're going to be spending our time. My hope is, is that we would be able to sing at the end, like we have sung there, that Jesus would be our prize, that Jesus would be to the one that we lift our eyes. I'm going to pray that God would help us to do that. Loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning. We pray for energy to hear what it is you have to teach. We pray for humility to know that we fall so far short of your standard. And see the length that you go to that you would call us back to yourselves, to yourself. Lord God, I pray that we pray that we may decrease and the Lord Jesus would increase. That will be in our lives and how we live and in what we do as a church. Help us all to turn our eyes to Jesus, our Saviour. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Right, so we're looking at Romans chapter 2. And as you read it as we followed, some of it is confusing again it's one of those passages I think Paul loves to do this where we're just a bit lost as to what he's actually saying we know a lot of the words but we don't fully follow the logic so the hope is is that we'll see just what it is he is saying but before that I want to tell you a story about me so when we were growing up we had one bathroom we were a normal family we had four of us in that bathroom we had four toothbrushes we had one toothpaste Right, and this toothpaste, you know, I don't know if we have them anymore, but the ones that would push up from the bottom, they were kind of the cylindrical, plasticky. I don't know if I'm too stingy to buy them anymore or if they don't go around, but I don't see them as often. But that's what we had in our family. And, and I hated about it, I hated about it, was the crust that would be left on the outside of the toothpaste. It would kind of be hard and, I mean, just in the toilet, the particles that could be catching onto it, it just annoyed me no end. And I would tell my parents and I'd tell my brother that this was infuriating. Not all the time, but sometimes. And they would say, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, and if it was, I'm, I'm sorry that, that that happened. Just the idea that someone else's saliva might be getting on my toothbrush annoyed me no end. And then after years of this torment, I went to uni and I had my own toothpaste. <laughs> I got to use my own toothpaste, and it was amazing. And I tell you what, two or three days in, when I walked into the bathroom and saw the crust there again, I couldn't believe it. And I realized that it was me that was putting the crust on the toothpaste. That it was me that was just lifting up too soon and leaving that there the entire time. And I was so annoyed, and it dawned on me that I was the toothpaste cruster. <laughs> Terrible toothpaste technique in how I was doing it. I was the person that was in the wrong. Now that shock is the shock that we're meant to have from Romans chapter 2. That shock of realizing that it's us that is the problem in this situation. That's what we're meant to feel as we come to Romans chapter 2. Between Romans chapter 132 and 2 verse 1 is the punch that should come to us. I'm going to, we're going to see that in just a second, but let me just run through the argument of what we've had so far. Paul has this really long argument. And if you weren't here last week, you'll love it. We have pictures to help us get through this. So the first thing that Paul tells us in Romans 1, 16, 17, is that the gospel is good news. That it is actually 
good news that Jesus came, lived on this earth, died and was resurrected is good news. And that's his argument for the whole letter. And he wants us to know it. And I think he wants us to feel it within ourselves that this is good news. And he goes to the place that we least expect to explain why this is. In verse 18 of chapter 1, he explains why this is good news. And the reason is, is because we're all guilty. We all have this problem. We're all guilty. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. His argument is this is good news because all of us have suppressed the truth and we're all guilty before God. If you were here last week, we saw that that happened in three different ways, that it was creation tells us, that, that there is a creator tells us that we must fall short of his standard. That we worship something other than God, again, shows us we're guilty. And if you just look at the brokenness of the world, it shows us, if you turn on the news, that there's a huge problem in the world. So the reason it's good news is because we're all guilty. And, and as if the camera is spanning from the TV screen to the news channels and all the things we read and think that's awful, what he does in Romans chapter 2 verse 1 is he turns it from the camera angle of the TV news to selfie mode. He flips the camera around to look at ourselves and that we are the problem. Even you, that's what he says, even you are the person who falls short of God's standard and are guilty. And I hope you can see this. If you have a Bible, look at chapter 1 and just look at the way, we're going to get English and grammatical, but just look at the way the person changes. So in verse 18, God talks about their unrighteousness of chapter 1. Verse 19, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Verse 21, though they knew God. Verse 24, God gave them up. Verse 26, God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them up. Verse 29, follow through me this list. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. They are slanders. They are haters of God. And the person reading this would be like me with my toothpaste and say, oh, terrible world. I can't believe that they're like that. Absolutely God is meant to judge them. Then look at chapter 2, from the very beginning. Therefore, you have no excuse. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man? Verse 4, do you presume on the riches of God? Chapter 1 focuses on the world out there. Chapter 2 turns it in on ourselves and says, even you are guilty. Even you fall short. And the people we should have in mind when we think of this is the person who looks on the world and says, yep, that is terrible. It's right that God judges. But I think the other kind of people are the people that would say, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm not perfect, but I am good. And to those people, Paul would say, you have no Excuse. So we see that 2 verse 1 says, therefore you have no excuse, is the exact same language he uses in verse 20 of chapter 1, where he says they are without excuse. He wants us to realize every single one of us is guilty. He's speaking to 
the morally upright person who thinks that they are good. And that kind of sounds like we could put that person away. I want us to be thinking of our friends and neighbours who we even think are good, who live a good life, who are part of the charity, who are part of societies in the local area, who help on the school board, who do everything for their children. Let me just think through some examples. It might be the person who is just an avid dog walker who listens to podcasts and is a hardworking man. That person, Paul would say, you are without, you have no excuse. Or the early morning jogger who, who loves an oat milk latte, that person is without excuse. To the older man who's part of the local historical society, to, to, the, to the ladies who help at the soup and sandwich at the care home, they are without excuse. Our neighbours is who he's talking to. And you know what? He's talking to us directly. And the way that Paul works through this argument is he, he throws up a question and he bats it down. He throws up a question and he bats it down and shows us how we are all without excuse. And so the first person that Paul speaks to in verses 1 to 3 is the person who says, but, but I'm good. I'm actually good. It's to the person that would say, why do I need Jesus? I think most of us will have friends and family who would actually ask that question. What do I have to gain from following Jesus? I don't do harm to anybody else. Why would God harm me? And that's where these verses come into the world. And I think the way that Paul does this is brilliant. I was wrestling through, am I just trying to force this onto the text? Or is this actually what Paul is doing? But he uses the very fact that we think we're good as reasons to show that we're not and that we need Jesus. So just follow through with me, verses 1 to 3. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because the judge because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. We'll come to verse 3 in just a moment. He says, you have no excuse, you who judges. Now, this is, this is the, the brilliant part of his argument, because all of us would probably say, I don't, I, don't, I don't judge people. I don't look down on people. I am a good person. I do good things. But he's speaking to us, and I think what he's saying to us is the very fact that we think we are good means that we have a standard by which we are living. The very fact that we don't stand outside criminal courts when people get put in prison and protest means that we think there is a right and a wrong, there is a good and a bad. Or the fact that most of us would have complained through COVID, I can't believe that they were having a party. Or where we all say, I am shocked that they have invaded that country, that they are doing heinous war crimes. And Paul doesn't say, don't judge people. He actually says they're wrong. They're absolutely the wrong thing. But he says the very fact that we know that they are wrong proves that there is a God because he proves that there is a divine lawgiver who puts in each of our hearts a right and a wrong. And because of that, we condemn ourselves. Because we're saying that there is a right and that there is a wrong. 
the very fact that when we hear of a murder and that person goes to prison, we say that's right. The very fact that when we steal, we think they should be punished for that. If we, if we lie and get caught, we think you deserve the consequences. We teach our children these very things. You deserve the consequences of this. Because if the evil went unpunished, we would be furious. We would be raging. Where there are heinous war crimes, we are rightly angry, we want punishment, and we want retribution. When someone turns off a life support machine for someone who is trying to survive, we're furious. We feel it deeply wrong within us. And the very fact that we can judge anyone means we know in our heart that there is a judge, that there's a right and a wrong. And one of the questions we can ask is, how are we judging this goodness? The person who, who, who walks around and says, I'm good, how are you judging that is good? Because I think we would all say, we're not, they're better than us. And they're slightly worse than us. And unsurprisingly, all of us land ourselves in the camp of good. Not great, not perfect, but good. And the very fact that we think that there is an objective standard of good and bad means we're all guilty. Because we don't make the standard. If we made the standards, it would be chaos. God makes the standard, the creator, the maker of all things. And he tells us that we all fall short. And it's because in chapter 1, when we're reading that list of murderers, of people who are evil, we think we're not like that. We're not as bad as them. We don't murder. We don't always love like we should. We just have a little hate in us. Or when we say we don't cheat, we don't always love our spouse fully as we should. It's just, just a little lust. Or when we say we are not selfish, we don't always think of others all of the time. Just, just, just a little selfish. We give ourselves that little bit of leeway because we want to be okay. We think we are right. And that's what he says in verse 3. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? God sets the standard. God draws a line. And God tells us we've all fallen short. And the fact that we know a right and wrong in our heart proves that it must have been put there by someone or something. It proves that we all fall short. Then verse 4, he moves on to his second objection where the person says, fine, 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 I'm not good. But you know what? Life's good. I'm quite happy. I'm quite content. Do I really need this Jesus? I might follow God when I'm older and need help. When there's something to gain or that kind of same question that we had before, what does Jesus give me that I don't already have? I mean, Speaking into Collington, Benali, Juniper Green, Curry, Balerno, all of us, this middle-class society can say, what is it that God actually gives us or offers us? Or what do I gain? 
from following this Jesus. And that's his response in verse 4 and 5. It's amazing. See this, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The whole point of your affluence is meant to point you to God. Verse 5 says, But because of your hard and penitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Our cushy, lovely lives are meant to point us to God, to repentance, to realize that we fall short. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Isn't that amazing? God's kindness is meant to show us that he is good and turn us back to him. As we've read through Romans, I've said this last week and I'll say it again, we have the idea sometimes that God is vindictive or has something out against us or is just unfair. Let me just walk through some of the ways in which he is trying to pull us back to himself. We saw last week in creation where we saw the fingerprints of God all around us. Like this big Hollywood sign that points to God's real, God exists. Get right with your maker. And the fact that we worship things is meant to point us and prove to us that we're not worshipping our creator. Taking the created things and worshipping them instead of our creator. Or when we look on the news and just see chaos, brokenness, all of that's meant to point us to show us that there's a huge problem we need dealt with. We're coming through these verses. The fact we know that there's a right and a wrong is meant to point us to a God that is real and loves us. The fact, he says, it's amazing, the fact that we have affluence in things is not the reason to get in the way of God, but is meant to point us to him and that we fall short of his standard. What more could God do to prove that he exists and that we fall short? He came himself, stepped into our story, took our punishment. What more could God do for us? There's not a lot more he could do to call us back. And I think it just shows his character and his love for us. That despite our running away from him, despite our like inward Mr. Morality or Mr. Morality saying, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm good. I don't really need Jesus. He still calls us to himself and longs, us, longs for us to know him, he pulls out all of the stops, stepped into our place, took the punishment that we deserved so that we could know our maker and creator. In his grace, he tells us that we need saving time and time again. And that's why I think he spends three chapters in Romans in some of the hardest parts of our life to tell us time and time again, you have no excuse. We're all guilty. And we need a saving. And just the way that the flow of the argument works, I'm just going to speed through the second half. Verses 6 to 11. Essentially the argument goes like this. There, 
is good news. We're all guilty. We need saving, every single one of us. So because, the, the argument is that there is a right and wrong, and because there is a right and a wrong, one day we will stand before our judge and maker and creator. And that's what he's getting at in verse 6 to 11. We've listened well so far, so again, we've got more pictures to help us get through this, just to figure out what is going on. Because what he does, he says, there are two ways to live. There are two ways in which you will do this. He says, verse 6, that he will render each one according to his works. He's going to judge us, each of us, fairly by our works. In verse 7, he says, those who do good, which is seeking glory, honor, and immortality, living God-centered lives, looking at our creator, we will have life, is what he says. Verse 8 kind of says the opposite. Those who are self-seeking, who are not looking for the truth, who are chasing in unrighteousness. Again, he would say what he says in chapter 1, wrath and fury. Verse 9 tells us trials, distress, that's internal and external things that we do, he calls evil. Verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace is for everyone who does good because God shows no partiality. That's kind of a line that he's going to come on to next week of God has no favorites. This is where I would compare God to the NHS. All of us lie on hospital beds, the CEO and the person who's on a pension. And all of us get fed the same food. All of us get fed at the same time. All of us wear those same backless robes. He has, shows no partiality, no matter our background or where we come from. And that means that we will be judged, the person who's come to church their entire life and lived off their parents' faith, and the person who steps in church one time, or the person who hung on a cross beside Jesus and lived a terrible life his whole life, and at the end turned to him. All of us are judged equally, no matter our background. And I guess, I think this is the first time in Romans where where Paul holds up these two different types of people in the world. There are those to whom life will be given everlasting, and there will be wrath for others. And he's doing it not to condemn us, but so that we might turn back to our God, realizing we're without excuse, realizing we need Jesus, realizing there's only one way for us to be saved. He asks the question, where are you? Are you someone who, verse 5 tells us, verse 4 tells us that we turn to repentance, turn back to God, seek him to fulfill our glory, our satisfaction, our joy? Or are we still chasing the things that we think will give us those things, but just hurt us and harm us time and time again? I don't know if you've ever waited for a TV show to come out and you've waited weeks or months in advance. When it comes, it never is as good as you hoped. And that thing, that feeling we have inside of us, we just put on the next thing and we chase after that and we chase after that. God would say that chasing is chasing after created things. Turn to our creator and maker. That is where we find our ultimate satisfaction. He asks, where are we? And I'll just close with this. This is just the message for the the Christians. What's interesting is the way that we're judged. 
I don't think he goes against what he's going to say later in the book, that it is Jesus alone that saves. But I think he's telling us that our faith that we have is never static. Verse 6 says, He will render each to each one according to his works. To those who do well, eternal life. To those who are selfish and self-seeking, wrath and fury. And he could be taken to say, it's all about what we do and how we live. But I think what he's doing is he's putting up these two types of people in the world. Verse 4 makes it clear that there's repentance that is needed. And I think it's not a, a, a moral achievement or how we do with our lives. It's the direction with which we change We saw this earlier in the book of Romans 1 verse 5 tells us that Paul is going out to tell the gospel for an obedience of faith. Faith is never static. Faith is never static and we are to live out lives worthy of the gospel. Not that we are judged on that alone is how Jesus saves us. Jesus alone is our saviour. But our faith is never something we proclaim once or believe in our hearts or even stand up here and give our testimony about it is meant to affect and change our life as we walk out this door as we walk around Collington as we walk around and live in our families wherever my heart is my worship my life my footsteps should follow and this is not to kind of beat us down we shouldn't leave here thinking goodness me I fall short of that standard I I don't know if I'm ever going to make it we, we rely fully on Jesus alone to save us. And there is proof in Romans that we mess up time and time again. But he's just asking us again, checking our hearts. Are we striving day after day, meal after meal, second after second, for our Lord and Savior, living out the faith that is within us? And so the question is, where are we? That's the question that he holds up for us, the mirror that we are meant to look into, that one day we will stand before our maker and judge. For us, it's to remember that the neighbours and friends that we have, who we genuinely think are good people, do we care that they will one day stand before their maker? Do we strive for their salvation. And that doesn't mean that we go home this afternoon and we pop a leaflet through the door and we knock on the door and tell them the gospel straight away. It might be long-term building up relationships, but do we care for the people we know and work with? That they are without excuse, even the people who look good. Paul would use that against them and say, the fact that you think you're good shows that you're not. People's eternity lays in the balance and there are two ways to live. I'll read from Romans 5, verse 6, just to finish, just so that we remember how good the gospel is. Romans 5, verse 6 says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person Though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in 
creation in the world that we see around us in telling us time and time again that we fall short. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's asking the question and in Romans 1, 2 and 3 he's telling us we can't do it on our own and we need a saviour. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing and then we're going to turn off YouTube after our last song and we'll take communion together and in communion we will remember what it does for us. It just slows us down remembering the death that Jesus died for us because all of us were guilty. All of us fell short. Every single one of us. And yet Jesus died for us. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we are without excuse. Even those of us who think we are good, who deep down within us really struggle with this idea that we're not. Help us remember that when we were at our very worst, Christ Jesus died for us. That we might know you, that we might have eternal life, that we might live in this world with hope. Give us joy. Give us a love for the lost. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.